There you are. I am immortal. I have inside me blood of kings. Yeah, I know. I have no rival. No man can be my equal. Let me see. Thomas Murphy. See, that's great. Now I have that fucking queen song stuck in my head. Well, you know. Yeah. I guess it's, it's only song. fair. I guess it's only fair for me forcing uh, Grand Duel on you, I guess. Oh, I love the uh, Grand Duel. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, lo I love that Queen song, too, so it don't matter. I pretty much just love Queen in general. Yeah, same here. Right, here so it is. We'll see if James Murphy shows up. Oh, I tried to call him, but it, I don't think he's online yet, so. Oh. It's because he's working on British internet. Yeah. So, so just a damn socialist internet. Socialist third world British oh. internet. Um, that's because they're still beholden to the um, royal family. That's right. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We just have her on our money, and we, we smile and wave whenever she shows up, and that's about it. She's the nominal head of state. That yeah. It's, we're, we're, Tommy, a, can you hear me? We can, can hear, you, hear you, and you sound much Thank clearer. Thank fucking Christ for that. <laughs> oh, man, I've never had so much trouble getting online in my life. I think Google Hangouts was just uh, taking a shit on us. I think yeah. that was... Google, Google, the, the omnipresent multinational, like, giant corporation, Google did not want this podcast to happen. This is simply what happens if you need to uh, discuss the career of Peter Cushion in 2016. Google will not allow it. Apparently. <laughs> Motherfuckers. Anyway. The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 78, the episode that uh, refuses to be recorded, apparently. I am your host, Lee Russell. I have my uh, guest host, or not guest host, regular host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm kind of always a guest host, and I'm doing fine because I have neither bought a skull that is causing me to kill my loved ones, uh, nor have I started murdering people who criticize this podcast, although that's coming, you assholes, so, that you know. Yeah, that is coming. There's a plan there. Our regular co-host Paul is on assignment right now, talking to Night of the Living Dead people and uh, having some fun. There should be more on that later for bonus content for the podcast. And we are joined by our guest host, James Murphy of Pex Lives. How are you doing, sir? I couldn't be more fucking happy to actually be here, guys. I'm really pleased. I love the, uh, love the podcast. Yeah, and we're glad that you're uh, finally here as well. And finally, clearly coming through on the old interwebs. Uh, just... it's, a, it's that horrible socialist Britain internet. Yeah. Clearly, that's the problem. Yeah. The, mm. the, well, what it, what it is is the royals are uh, sucking off all the bandwidth. That's right, just like, yeah. Just just like they're sucking off the, the money, the, the fucking dole from the, uh, the whole kingdom. Well, you're a Canadian, Lee. You know all about all that. Yeah, but uh, like I was telling Daniel off the uh, recording, uh, we just whenever the royals show up in our country, we just sort of smile and wave at them. 
and just sort of pity them. That, that's kind of what it's like over here. So yeah, it's like, oh, look at that, uh, look at that nice old lady who's waving at everybody. I don't think she knows where she is. I think she might be senile. And look at her fucking inbred kids. Oh, great. I hate the world family more than anything, but uh, that's not what we're here to talk about today, guys, is it? We're not here to hear me rant about royalty for an hour, because I can do that, but... (laughs) Yeah, but uh, we're going to be covering two movies. Uh, One of them was... Well, actually, one of them is sort of a makeup for you, James, because for those who don't know, James, one of the subsidiaries of the... Pex Lives sort of podcasting empire is the City of the Dead podcast, which uh, has been covering the Amicus films in order. And you missed out on the skull, so you get to uh, make it up here on this podcast. And yeah, yeah, and you suggested Theater of Blood for us to do, so uh, we're going to be doing both of these films this time out. Before we do that, uh, we'll just get to uh, a couple of comments here, get them out of the way. Drunketh Wizard says that on our little demons bonus episode that I did with Paul the other week, I think we should have made the Stoned Age 2, but with demons, imagine that mashup. I don't think any of my uh, co-hosts here are familiar with the Stoned Age, but I think essentially uh, Idle Hands is that movie, uh, if you think about it. The Stone Age is essentially a uh, lower-budget version of Dazed and Confused that's not quite as deep and thoughtful, I guess. But uh, you, you guys are familiar with Idle Hands, though. I'm not. Idle Hands is a 1999 Seth Green vehicle, uh, which basically takes the best gag from Evil Dead 2 and transforms it into a feature-length picture. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll give that a watch. Yeah, it's actually not bad. It, it was a movie that sadly got overlooked because of the Columbine tragedy. Just it came out right afterwards, so no one wanted to see movies of kids being murdered. Not, not actually, not so much a Seth Green vehicle because Seth Green really wasn't. He was, he was just like a side player in that. It was the uh, Devin Sawa who ended up being nothing in the end. Who you know had like a couple films and disappeared for the most part, and then you had Jessica Alba. And that was like her first big role where she got noticed. It's like, oh, this chick looks really hot. She can't act that well, but she's really hot. So let's put her in more films. So Doesn't Seth Green, isn't he like a zombie in that film or something? Yeah, he comes back as like a, I don't know if you'd say zombie, maybe like a Revenant or something like that. He sort of comes back. I, I kind of I always thought it was like a kind of a ripoff of the American Werewolf in uh, London. Thing. Yes, it's very much that kind of same gag, yeah. But uh, but it, it it's kind of like that the movie kind of follows any movie you can think about of, of a disembodied hand coming back and killing people, essentially. There was that great Michael Caine one where he's an artist and he loses the hand and the hand goes out and kills other people. Mm-hmm. Probably Michael Caine's greatest role, I would say, actually. Yeah, and they did that same story in one of the uh, Amicus uh, anthologies as well. Yes, indeed, yeah. Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, is that it? Yes, um, yeah. Years old. That's absolutely right. Yeah, another critic being murdered. We got a running theme here, I think. But yeah, thank you for that uh, comment, Drunketh Wizard. Uh, he's actually been a follower of this podcast for a long time, and he's also uh, he's got a, he's got a blog himself. So uh, and he just joined onto the uh, Facebook group that we have. Wait, 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 wait. Down, Lee, for God's sake, what's going on? You guys have a Facebook group? We do. We do. Hold on, is that the best way of contacting us, if you want to contact us? It is the single best way to contact us. We read everything on the Facebook group, so you want your comments, suggestions, anything like that taken seriously? Join up to the Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. Leave a comment, say hi, tell us we suck. 
what whatever you know. Well, you can tell me I suck, but uh, tell Lee and James they're brilliant. But like, uh, I'm I'm fine with being told I suck because I do no work for this podcast. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Daniel does nothing. Yeah, what a bunch of bullshit. And now we have a nice surprise comment from uh, old friend to the podcast, Greg. <laughs> the second we started doing horror movies again, he came back. Surprise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he says, "Shit, I didn't know this podcast was still going." Uh, I've seen Cemetery Man a bunch of times. I really like that movie, even though I don't know why. It makes no sense and doesn't really go anywhere, but it's fun and has zombies and boobs. Now I know why. I just watched Night Train Murders completely blind for the first time and really liked it. I didn't realize it was a Last House on the Left type movie and was pleasantly surprised. It's one of the better ones. And that scene where the girl is running around the train with no pants, totally fappable. Cheers. So, uh, yeah, Greg's in good form here, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about calling that totally fappable uh, in context, but uh, I'll allow it, like, it, if, it, you know, for the genre. Yeah, yeah. If, if you see that scene and just like those few seconds of that scene out of context, maybe. Yeah, maybe and, until she, you know, gets dashed out on the rocks. Or whatever. If, you, if you enter a headspace where all this is consensual and it's just like a really edge play kind of BDSM scene that they're doing, <laughs> uh, that that's the only way I would really like consider that fappable. <laughs> Kind of yeah. like masturbation for Buddhists, if you can just take out this one Zen moment and enjoy that away from all the slaughter and the blood that's around it. Yeah, perhaps. Which which is kind of like you know if you if you're a man in your 30s and you kind of like your first exposure to uh, you know nudity was you know these kinds of films, uh, you did have to kind of like uh, differentiate that and kind of go, oh, there's three seconds of nudity here. I've got to time my orgasm for right then. <laughs> Yeah, you, you got to kind of, you know, with these horror movies, you definitely got to like... Actually, these, these horror movies probably probably created a lot of uh, premature ejaculators when you think about it. Because, oh, tits, 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 oh, violent murder. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the opposite of Sting with his tantric stuff. You know, oh. horror movie fans with their VHSs they just had to get out as quickly as possible before they saw, you know, Kane Hodder hack some team to pieces. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was uh, watching the late night Skinamax stuff, but like uh, non decoded, you know? Yeah. So it was uh, very much like, so like, I think that's a boob or it might be an elbow. I'm not sure, but uh, we're going to go for it anyway. <laughs> hey, you know? that's that's best. That's better, actually, because you have to sort of use your imagination with that kind of masturbation. So, you know, it, 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 make, it makes, for, makes for a person who can handle themselves better in the long run. Because you don't need Bad to watch. News, guys, I'm really into elbows now. I'm just all about elbows. Thanks to that little shot. <laughs> we don't we don't kink shame on this podcast we completely accept all uh, orientations and uh you know proclivities so that, that's fine some some elbownism i don't know what would even be the term for that whatever the medical term for elbow is yeah uh we can move on to what we've been watching as of late get out of this weird topic daniel you had something so uh I'll let you go first yeah i have a i don't know kind of a cool thing i got to see the original 1931 frankenstein on the big screen this week oh nice alamo draft house of course at the alamo draft house on monday night uh or Sunday night actually they were showing it i went in i had a few beers i got to see frankenstein on the big screen i'd seen it before it had been a long time i don't know that i have anything particularly interesting to say about the experience because i would assume that everyone listening to this is at least like seen the interesting bits of the original frankenstein but yeah, get to see it on the big screen. It was a lot of fun. I drank some beer. I went home. It was cool. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, well, yeah, I don't that, really have a sophisticated analysis. Of I'm, that, I'm, I'm really surprised that wasn't a double bill because 
Frankenstein's a really short watch. It's only like a 70 minute film. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that, that's probably, I, I think that for me, kind of rewatching it, particularly seeing it on the big screen, it's interesting how much we've like focused on as kind of like the, the kind of cultural osmosis on a certain small elements, the it's alive bit, the like, you know, the burning pit, uh, pitchforks, the, you know, those sorts of things. And yet like, so there, that's a very tiny part of the film mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of actual screen time. Um, I, I really wish, uh, I know they are going to do Bride of Frankenstein as well. Uh -huh. And I'm uh, thinking about like kind of seeing a couple more. I mean, they're doing kind of horror movies all month. So we'll see what I uh, end up wanting to pony up the money to actually go see on the big screen. But um, yeah. it would have been nice if they'd kind of done a double feature. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a cheap screening. So I, I don't, I don't feel like bad about, I mean, I would, Anytime you get to see something from 1931 on a big screen today, I will be happy to go see it. Um, it was definitely a fun, a fun watch. So I, th I think you'll get more enjoyment out of Bride. By the way, that's actually the superior film in the in the Frankenstein series. I, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I mean, I've seen I've seen oh, okay. both of those. So, um, I, I would definitely uh, agree with the uh, general sentiment that Bride is the better film. I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things where it's almost like it's been so. Uh, Aped and so uh, kind of uh, we, we've just seen so many parodies of it and so many remakes and so many other versions of it that watching it in its original the only, the one thing I got a cat of it was the uh, the central performances you know you know Lon Chaney's performances uh, is just the I mean it is in some ways the quintessential but uh, it's also just sort of uh, yeah you know this is this is just what Frankenstein is right I mean it, it's a, such a part of our culture that we don't even notice it anymore yeah. Oh, look. And you meant Karloff, yeah. Oh, Karloff, excuse me. I, I'm, I'm because of the delay in uh, recording this. I'm four beers in, so um, everybody, <laughs> you know, forgive me for that, uh, for that misstatement, you know, because obviously I knew that was Karloff and not Cheney. <laughs> yeah, it's true what you say about Frankenstein. The, the iconic moments are the ones that will come into Saturday morning cartoons. But in some ways, the overriding image I get from that first Frankenstein film is Colin Clive lying in a bed looking obsessed. That's kind of what a lot of that film is after he's raised the monster. It's him worrying that his bride isn't about to get strangled. Yeah, that, that film sells that kind of stuff very well. There's great performances in it. But, uh, but again, I will say Bride is probably the better film. It's the more interesting one, that's for sure. But yeah, both both great films. One of my favorite podcasts, Slaughter Film, just did uh, the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. So uh, if you want to hear more about those, download the latest uh, episode of Slaughter Film. Go go listen to a better podcast. Is kind of what you're you know, like. Yeah, or, yeah, fine. Go yeah. listen to a, a better podcast. They are a better podcast. I'll just say that. But uh, yeah, we we should be aiming to be the best movie podcast out there. That's come on, Lee. I like, I, I know let's my let's professionalize here. I know my limitations. We've got James fucking Murphy on this podcast. Clearly, this is going to be the best episode ever. Well, <laughs> it, it probably it, it probably will, and but he'll probably he'll probably disavow it after it's done, though. He'll have nothing to do with it anymore. Fair enough. I have the Peter of any podcast situation. I'll deny you three times before dawn. <laughs> uh, is there anything you've watched in the last little while, James, that you might want to talk about? Yeah, I'll just briefly say, I watched uh, The Conjuring 2. I was aiming to do uh, 31 horror movies in October, and that immediately fell to pieces. Um, <laughs> I've seen four, perhaps. Um, but The Conjuring 2, I quite enjoyed the first one a good deal, actually. I thought it was a decent, spooky, haunted house film. And I like The Conjuring 2. It's set in that 
dingy 70s Britain that's quite a, uh, a ripe arena or uh, set in there. And I liked it, you know, it was spooky in the right places. It wasn't setting out to be any great art or anything. It didn't want to do anything shocking or new. But for wanting to be a spooky house movie, it succeeded quite well at that. And I quite enjoy the people who play those flim-flam people, <laughs> the yeah. warrants. As yeah, a pair of uh, liars being taken seriously in horror movies, I quite enjoy that. The wife, she's still alive. Don't they use her as like a consultant or something like that on, on these movies, I think? Uh, uh, yeah, they just take them far too seriously. Yeah, I still haven't seen that yet. I have to I have to pick that up. I, I remember uh, Jack Graham also saying he, he quite liked it. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to watch that. Uh, I, 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 hold, like, on, hold on, Jack who? Jack I, I don't know who you're talking about. No, you don't know? This is obscure podcaster and writer. He, he, a lot. I, I know a lot of people don't know, but I'll, I'll send you some links later. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I, I do want to see that. I, I kind of like horror movies with ghostly nuns, evil yeah. nuns. I like that kind of image. Yeah. All right. A couple things I watched. Uh, I, I recently watched a little sort of kind of an independent horror movie. I am not a serial killer that came out this year. It's got Christopher Lloyd in it. It's got the, I think the kid from where the wild things are. I think that's who it is. I think he's in that film. I think I heard he was in that. Max something. Pet Max something his name is. I can't fucking think of it right now. But really interesting film. But there's basically this teenage kid. He is a classic sociopath. He's got all these sort of uh, signaling uh, points for becoming a potential serial killer. So he's trying to work through not becoming a serial killer. He's got a counselor. He's trying to follow these rules to stop himself from ending up as the next Jeffrey Dahmer, essentially. And people start getting killed in his town. And he decides to take it upon himself to hunt down the serial killer who's killing people in this small, quiet uh, American town that he lives in. It comes to the point where he realizes that it may very well be his elderly across-the-street neighbor, played by Christopher Lloyd, who is the serial killer. And there might be even more to him than meets the eye, but I won't give away too much, but it's a very kind of slow burn, meditative kind of horror movie with some really freaky elements to it. It's very well acted. Uh, it was a big surprise for me going in. I didn't expect too much from it, but if people are familiar with the American remake of, what is it, Let Me In, that vampire movie from, uh, where is it from, Sweden or Switzerland? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the American remake, which was uh, Let the Right One In, I believe. It it's very much has that sort of same feeling, and I thought that was actually a pretty good remake, even though it was pointless, but it was a really good one. Very moody, uh, very well shot. This has a lot of similarities to that, but of course the story is different. And it's it's really interesting, like, just seeing a character who is on the edge of becoming a serial killer himself, trying to fight those sort of desires and those impulses while trying to confront someone who is just totally given in to those sort of impulses, so... It was an interesting film. I saw this on, uh, I, I, I haven't watched it yet, but I saw it was on Netflix and kind of, I mean, just that title, I'm Not a Serial Killer, just kind of makes me, oh, I kind of want to see that. And based on your description, I actually now really do want to see that. So um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I will see that and tell you what I think about it. But in reality, it'll be like six months from now. I'll finally yeah. go, oh yeah, remember that thing we were talking about? Like, yeah, I'll finally get around to it. Because um, <laughs> that's just the way I watch movies these days. But yeah. Uh, yeah, fair enough. The other thing I watched, uh, actually just watched it today on uh, Netflix. The 1959 version of Journey to the Center of the Earth. With, oh, nice. Yeah, with James Mason, with Pat fucking Boone. I don't 
<laughs> with James Mason and Pat fucking Boone. Hold on, was it 1959? Yeah. <laughs> and I'll say is I actually want to save this one for review on the podcast at some point. Pat Boone is the... I don't know what, what is more unbelievable pat boone as a scotsman or pat boone as a fucking scientist because he, he plays both in this fucking film and neither one is convincing at all but the rest of it is actually really good uh, essentially if there was no pat boone in this picture this picture would be fucking note perfect but uh <laughs> so now i kind of want to do this and pair it with the world is not enough which had um Denise Richards as a scientist. Yeah, that's it's and, on the same and, level. And compare who makes the worst on-screen scientist. <laughs> uh, well, at the very least, Pat Boone can convincingly read his lines, so you can kind of maybe buy he's a scientist just as his character. But if you know Pat Boone, it's yeah, Pat Boone's not. He's but the furthest thing away from a fucking scientist you can think of in real life. Um, it's funny, like, my reference point, my uh, mental reference point for uh, Pat Boone is the uh, 80s metal covers he did in the mid-90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, I always think of that because uh, in my uh, dorm room, we had, uh, like, a, a, a bunch of guys. There was, like, this one dorm where they had, like, that album cover on their, like, dorm uh, wall. And so you'd go in there and suddenly they had that. And uh, so um, the idea of Pat Boone, like wearing bronzer and a black leather vest, like that's my mental image of Pat Boone all the yeah. time. Yeah. Pat Boone's absolute garbage. Apparently when he first got signed on to that film, he had this deal where he was trying to get like six or seven of his fucking songs on that fucking film. And they cut it down to like two, but because thankfully they wanted the film to actually be watchable. So. Uh, Those mics just said, no fucking way. Yeah. No fucking way. Yeah. No fucking way. Get Pat Boone off of my fucking set. <laughs> well, if you do want to see uh, a journey to the center of the earth, uh, the world is not enough, uh, twofer for the Amsterdam Show on site sometime. And actually, I think that would be a good Christmas episode because uh, yeah. obviously Denise Richards is the uh, is playing Christmas Jones. <laughs> As you know, Christmas only comes once a year. Mm. Uh, which is the one good joke in that movie. Hey, I bet, uh, you, I bet you Pat Boone only came once a year, too. Because <laughs> he's a hardcore Christian, yeah. yeah. Uh, go and uh, comment on our Facebook group. That's yeah. the best way of getting in contact with us, really. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, both highly recommended. So um, I think we can move on, finally, get to our movies to, today. And the first one we're going to talk about is The Skull from 1965. It's a new height in fright. Doctor, what of animals to do with this? The man's jugular vein was bitten clean through. such diabolic evil as the skull. I found in the morning that the skull had been removed. But who removed it? Those who use its power. Invisible beings, spirits from a strange, evil world. The moving skull spreads its shrieking terror everywhere. Ah! 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 
casting its hypnotic trance over all who fall under its hideous shadow. Turning a lover into a killer at its evil command. Never before such blood-curdling horror as the skull. Directed by the always impressive Freddie Francis, written by Milton Sabowski, and it's basically taken from the story by Robert Bloch, which I have also read, uh, which is The Skull of the Marquis de Sade, and it is starring Peter Cushing as Christopher Maitland, Patrick Weimark as Marco, Jill Bennett as Jane Maitland, Nigel Green as Inspector Wilson, Patrick McGee as Police Surgeon, Peter Woodthrope as Travers, Michael Goh as The Auctioneer, George Coloris as Dr. Lond, April Orrich as French Girl, Maurice Good as Pierre, the phrenologist, and Christopher Lee as Sir Matthew Phillips in a sort of small role. And I'll throw the synopsis over to you, Daniel. Well, uh, I didn't write synopses this week. Instead, I'm neither of these movies have any interest in their plots, so I'm not going to bother with them either. I'm just going to read the plot summaries from Wikipedia, and if you don't like it, then go fuck yourself. So, exactly. um, you know, in the 1800s, Pierre, a phrenologist, robs the grave of the recently buried Marquis de Sade. He takes the Marquis's severed head and sets about boiling it to remove its flesh, leaving the skull. Before the task is done, Pierre meets an unseen and horrific death. In modern-day London, Christopher Maitland, Cushing, a, co a collector and writer of the occult, is offered the skull by Marco, an unscrupulous dealer in antiques and curiosities. Maitland learns that the skull has been stolen from Sir Pierre Phillips, Lee, a friend and a fellow collector. Sir Matthew, however, does not want to recover it, having escaped its evil influence. He warns Maitland of its powers. At his sleazy lodgings, Marco dies in mysterious circumstances. Maitland finds his body and takes possession of the skull. He, in turn, falls victim as the skull drives him to hallucinations, madness, and death. Yeah, I, I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, Wikipedia did not fail this time out. Wikipedia um, didn't fail, but there weren't nearly enough jokes. That's the that's the problem. Well, me just taking them from the Wikipedia summaries, but you know, hey, you live, you learn. Uh, <laughs> so, as traditional with this podcast, uh, when we have a guest on, we'll throw over to James Murphy first, sir. What are your sort of uh, initial thoughts on this uh, movie? You know, it ain't a knockdown, drop dead classic horror movie. You don't go to it for a spine tingling, hard or good time. You go to it really for the actors. That's the draw here. That's what you want to do. Is you want to watch Peter Cushing falling around a house for a half hour at the end of the movie saying nothing. You want to mm -hmm. see filthy looking uh, Patrick Wiremark in, as Wikipedia so well put it, in his sleazy lodgings. Um, <laughs> it's a very dirty, grimy 60s Britain that it's got to offer. And like a lot of these films, the setting 
is as much a character as the uh, main characters. Uh, Christopher Lee, I watched this uh, this afternoon for the first time in about two years. And because the way I came across it in the first place was searching Christopher Lee's name in Netflix, I was very disappointed by the amount of Lee that was in the film. But this time I remembered him being barely in it. And I was pleasantly surprised at how much it was that traditional Christian Lee twofer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's the sort of film that you should put on at about midnight, just as you're about to fall asleep. You know, you can nap through little bits of the movie as well. It's not that important. But it's got a real nice atmosphere. And like a lot of these amateur films, you can just sit back and let it wash over you in a really nice way. Yeah. Daniel, your sort of initial thoughts on this one? My my problem with reviewing this film is that I've listened to the uh, City of the Dead episode that Jack and Holly did. And they did it so well that I, I kind of have nothing else to say that's at all interesting. <laughs> my feeling on it, just kind of initial impressions, is just there is very little dialogue in there are big chunks mm-hmm. of this film. I, th- I think the first spoken lines really uh, don't happen until about seven or eight minutes into the film. Uh, there's a uh, big chunk towards the end, uh, about 20 minutes in the last half hour, uh, basically run with uh, you know one or two lines of spoken dialogue. This is a film that lives and dies on its visuals um, and its uh, special effects, uh, which are uh, quite nice for the budget and the period. It's a film that lives and dies on its performances, which again are, are very, very nice. Um, but there's not, I mean, it's not, <laughs> my, my issue with sitting and talking about it is that there's not much to talk about. It kind of is very is superficial and surface level. It kind of exists on this, uh, this sort of like, oh, it's telling the story about this guy who's haunted by the skull of the Marquis de Sade. And that's kind of what it is. It's great. It kind of exists on that level. Um, it's very evocative. It's very. Um, it works very well as an experience. I don't know that I ever needed to watch this twice, and I have seen the film twice because I watched it before listening to the original City of the Dead podcast. You know, that's the film it is. I would uh, have really appreciated seeing this on the big screen first. I think it would have been a really great experience on the big screen. Mm-hmm. For me, it's kind of like yeah. There's 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 just no. There's not a lot of meat to it. It doesn't give me anything to really like sit and want to like chew into. But it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very evocative and uh, probably is uh, of interest to people who haven't seen it who do listen to this podcast. So you know that's kind of my <laughs> my beginning and end of my commentary on this film in some <laughs> way. Yeah, for me this is one I do watch every once in a while. Uh, I do love this one quite a bit, honestly. This is. Probably hands down, in my opinion, the best sort of non-anthology film that Amicus did. Amicus, of course, are usually known for doing uh, big anthology films. Unlike a lot of other films, this one, a lot of their stuff is set in modern times for, for the Amicus anthologies. So there, there is a difference here from the Hammer stuff, which is mostly period pieces. I think this is probably a tour de force, in my opinion, for Peter Cushing. Uh, it it is it sh- it shows what a just straight up great actor he is because like you said, not a lot of dialogue in this film. It is very much held up by not only his usual greatness when he's speaking lines, but just his physical performance in this film is really good. Very emotive, very very powerfully done. There's this really great sequence halfway through the film where the skull induces a hallucination of some sort on on Cushing. And he finds himself up against this basically kangaroo court where he's forced to play Russian roulette 
and then he's thrown into uh, basically a, a hallway and jailed. Uh, I, I guess kind of foreshadowing that it's inevitable that he's going to not be able to escape the power of the skull, I think is kind of what that's kind of signaling. But the physical performance that he puts on is one of the first big things that really attracted me to this film and sort of kept me rewatching every once in a while, just because I, I really think it is one of the more unheralded great performances from, from Cushing. That alone is makes the film worth seeking out. And I just like the uh, sort of old creepiness of the film. It's just a very classical uh, hammer slash amicus kind of well-done, creepy kind of idea. Uh, everyone plays it straight, even though the idea of a skull floating around the room is, like, dead fucking silly. But the actors all sell it. Cushing, especially, of course, again, sells the horror of the skull, uh, which off-camera... Uh, rips the necks out of, uh, rips the throats out of people, uh, you know, bites them on the neck if it if it can't get its way. I love all the performances. I think, actually, even though I, I really love uh, Cushing's performance in this, I think Patrick Weimark is especially great in this, uh, just playing this really slimy motherfucker, this, this duplicitous, thieving con artist who just likes uh, acquiring these uh, occult relics and then selling them to all these sort of upper crest rich white men who have nothing but time on their hands to uh, go to auctions and buy statues of the devil and shit like that. Very, very fun stuff. I, I really do like that. What do you, what do you guys think about the, uh, the set designs in this? Because, and I'll throw this over to James first. I, I think th this is a very low budget film and it's very limited sets. Like it's only two or three sets really that they use in the entire film. And man, they populate this shit with props so well. Like the set design on this, I thought was fucking amazing. Yeah, that really struck me as well today when I was watching it. When you look around Trishin's kind of library slash museum slash office mm. and the amount of stuff they got there, it did actually make me think of the movie I mentioned earlier, The Conjuring 2. It was like the Warrens' uh, horror museum. The mm. stuff that you had lying all over the place, you could follow the story of any number of items that was in there. And you mentioned Trishin's uh, kind of hallucination with the judge and everything. Yeah. And when he was there, there's all these very sort of vividly painted red walls that he's walking through and the skull comes floating down surrounded by mist so i didn't have an awful lot to work with but they made it work um and even the shape of the rooms is slightly off you know it sort yeah. of suggests that these angles are just aren't quite right even the auctioneer place at the very start of the movie is set up in a very purposefully isolating kind of way. When Christopher Lee's aristocratic character is bidding on these devilish looking statues and he isn't quite sure why, he's very like, he's faced directly against Cushing as his opponent for these uh, devils. Um, I think it just shows an amount of forethought in the set design and then the place in, it's one of those things where the budget had no, they had nowhere to go. It's one of the reasons why a lot of amateur films were set contemporaneously. They were set in the 1960s and 70s. So they didn't have to pay for those old-fashioned-looking tuxedos and things. Mm -hmm. What they had to do was they had to think about where they were going to spend the money. And, uh, yeah, this rivals like Roger Corman in terms of well-used limited sets. Yeah, yeah, good good point. Cushing has the most goddamn purple fucking Victorian wallpaper in his in his study there. It's absolutely beautiful. I, I, I want that fucking room. I want to live in that fucking yeah. room. 
<laughs> it's 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 magnificent how how fucking the the amount of detail like I I've seen a lot of films from this period and I I kind of say that if nothing else this film kind of trumps pretty much every other film of this sort from that period as far as like set design goes like they they make the most out of just the limited sets they had and everything looks good everything from that to uh, the apartment complex that uh, Marco lives in. Uh, especially those like stained glass windows going down the middle of the staircases or whatever that that unfortunate superintendent of the uh, apartments goes crashing through. Yeah, everything looks great. E- even the opening looks really good, even though, you know, it's obviously a set and everything, but just it's the grave digging sequence looks really, really well done. It's It's got that very, as if you took Frankenstein and just colorized it, like the grave digging in Frankenstein. I definitely... Yeah. Watching, uh, I mean, watching the original Frankenstein this week, it definitely kind of put me in the headspace of uh, kind of looking at that opening sequence uh, in a very uh, universal horror kind of way. And then you get into the um, prologue sequence where he's uh, kind of boiling the skull and, um, you know, putting the acid or like, don't ask me about the chemistry in the beginning hmm. of this film because uh, it's, it's pointless to have that conversation. You know, the, the, uh, in the bathhouse, he's, he's kind of there. You kind of get the, the steam, you get the, uh, the kind of set design, you get the uh, beautiful girl uh, in the, in the tub, which is always hmm. appreciated. She becomes a character a little bit later on, but there is this sort of sense of it's using a set design to evoke a particular time and place. You're right. It is a low budget film, but it doesn't feel low budget. It feels like, yeah, this is this is just kind of a movie that exists in the time period. It doesn't feel, you know, cardboard sets. It feels uh, very lived in all through the film, and uh, even in the kind of very, kind of brief period sequences, you kind of get the sense of this uh, lived in, earthy kind of feel to the whole thing. Um, it doesn't feel like kind of costume drama. It feels like something that is uh, on some level. Uh, it does have some verisimilitude, and uh, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of damning the faint praise because I'm kind of like I have nothing much to say about it thematically or <laughs> anything, but um, it's an effective film, and it's an effective because it's well-directed, it's well-acted, uh, you know, in terms of the, the technical things that are kind of going on in the background. Everybody's kind of working on their A-game. Everybody brings everything they can bring. They just don't really have the budget to really pull it into, like, a 21st century thing, but, uh, you know, I, I I admire the way this film looks through almost every frame. After Trishin and after Patrick Weimark, I think my favourite character is definitely French Joe from that opening sequence. She's um, there's something very eye-catching about her. Mm-hmm. I, I like her especially because it kind of sets up the way the skull uses people as well. Because I mean, <laughs> they they set up in the story that okay, if the skull isn't going to get its way with you, it just rips your throat out and it's done with you, or causes you to die in some other horrible way. The skull definitely has like a limitation to its power. It seems like it's very much, it, it has to victimize people who have some sort of problem with their, their morality, some sort of underhandedness. People who are greedy or obsessed with some things. You know, people who, like the Marquis de Sade, you know, kind of sin a little bit, you know? Uh, yeah. the, because the, the idea is that the skull is, and the idea set forth in the story is that the Marquis de Sade was possessed by a demon of some sort. So that demon still exists within the physical embodiment of the skull. And so the skull directs people like Marco who are 
easily corruptible. Peter Cushing's character becomes easily corruptible because of his obsession for more knowledge, uh, for forbidden knowledge. Uh, occult um, knowledge, if we're going yeah. to uh, go that far. The, and it's interesting that they make a point that Christopher Lee is actually, although he is persuaded for a little while, he still has enough dignity and sort of uh, moral to resist the skull ultimately. And that's why the skull moves on to somebody else to try to get its its sort of evil designs in place. Because it's the, the, the whole setup is that uh, the statues that Christopher Lee is bidding on early on in the film, one of them is to be used for some sort of ritual on the full moon of the month, of course, for some sort of uh, satanic uh, conjuring. So the skull is essentially moving itself around from owner to owner, trying to uh, find someone who will follow its uh, desires. You, you see the French girl in the, in the beginning, not a bad person, but once her uh, lover there dies, the phrenologist dies, she wants to get hers out of the relationship. And while she's doing that, we have that guy who's, I guess the, what would you call him of the estate? The executor? Executor of the estate, exactly. Thank you. He seems like he's kind of going to be there to uh, kind of get his own as well, you know? Like, he's, he's summing through the guy's stuff. He's throwing out stuff that doesn't look interesting. He's kind of putting stuff aside that does look interesting. So he's, he's not quite on the up and up. So he gets corrupted by the skull. So there's this theme of corruptible people being used by the skull. Ultimately, in the end... Peter Cushing ends up dying, but he does at least make the turnaround to save his wife at the very least. If he can't even, if he can't save himself, but uh, I thought that was an interesting theme in the in the uh, in the sort of story. It doesn't uh, punish the French girl for her sexuality either. Um, no, I mean she she's uh, presented. I mean she's like, oh, I want to fuck this. Uh, you know, I want to fuck the phrenologist. Like she, you know, she's explicitly coded. I mean, I mean, this isn't even subtext. This is text. She's explicitly like, oh, I'm in this kind of like hidden relationship with this guy. And he's like, no, 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 I've got to do this thing. I just stole this skull. Like, you have to go away now. And um, she's the victim mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, some someone who is, who is punished by this, which I think is really interesting for a film of this era and for a, you know, a film even today to, to kind of uh, treat her with that kind of level of respect, you know. Because they could have very easily just, uh, oh, she's fucking a whore, and so, like, she dies first or something, you know. Contemporary Hammer films and the rival to Amicus, they often would have, like, the sort of, the loose woman would be, like, a victim because of the fact that she's a loose woman. Like, uh, especially in, like, the Dracula films. In, in all the Dracula films, without fail, pretty much the first victim to, uh, to Christopher Lee's Dracula is, like, the, the slut of the film, essentially. I was thinking about Drink the Blood of Dracula when I was uh, watching this the second time, kind of in yeah. that you know, treatment of sensuality, um, particularly in that first like you know seven or eight minutes. Um, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily have a have a thought because it kind of gets dropped immediately, and then you know you only get to see that like towards the very end with uh, with the way the, the film treats his wife, uh, Peter Cushing's wife, towards the end. But um, I was definitely kind of thinking that uh, watching this that uh, there there is a there is a kind of sexualized reading that sounds really interesting to me, but it, it, the film kind of drops it. So yeah. Uh, any other sort of thoughts there, James? Yeah, just my final kind of thought is you mentioned this being a unheralded Cushing performance, and I was thinking about it, and I think that's because he makes it look so effortless, and he is ably supported by everyone else, but it becomes a one-man play at the very mm -hmm. end. 
and he's doing the kind of Hamlet thing where he's trying to stop himself from doing the murder. He's talking himself away from the Stoll's influence and the Stoll keeps getting back at him. And I love what you're saying, Lee, about the fact that it's the weakness of the person that the Stoll latches onto. And uh, Trishin's kind of reaching for forbidden knowledge is the way that the Stoll works through him. Yeah, I think it's just because Peter Trishin makes this acting looked like it wasn't any sweat off him. And I'm sure he worked very hard at it. He was a very methodical preparer. Yeah. Um, but you see him and it just, the, the performance comes out of him like um, like sweat would come out of us on a sunny day. It looks like it's nothing. <laughs> and I love it. I love watching him. Yeah. And it's it's, it's kind of interesting too, because he's more, he's more of the uh, morally uh, amb- ambiguous sort of character here. He's more of the potential villain in this film compared to um, uh, Christopher Lee, who usually would play the the villain, or at the very least, the arrogant asshole. But in this one, Christopher Lee is like pretty much coded as a fucking uh, stalwart white knight kind of guy more yeah. than anything else. So that, that was also kind of shocking to me the very first time I saw this, because I was only familiar with Christopher Lee's sort of villainous roles at that point. So when I saw him playing this, I was like, wow, he's actually playing a good guy in this film. He's actually playing... Outside of uh, Cushing's wife, probably the nicest character in the film, like the the yeah. most the most up, upright and, and good. He's really trying to do the best thing for yeah. Cushing's character. You really get a sense of the relationship between these guys. Oh but yeah. There, uh, there's this uh, tension between them, but also this like deep friendship. <laughs> in another place, in another time, I will uh, totally give you a queer reading. But, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I, I will say uh, um, Cushing's lovely wife seems dreadfully unattended with affection. <laughs> so, uh, so there might there might be something that. Just looking at the just looking at Cushing next to her, I'm kind of for a minute I was like, oh, is she supposed to be his daughter? Mm. Um, because I just kind of missed completely. Like, oh no, no, that's his wife. Oh right, of course, because this is a movie, and uh, you know, of course, she's thirty years younger than he is. Correct. Yeah, you, you, man, you see that in just about every one of these films. You, you have the older British uh, gentleman who's either the hero or main character or whatever, and then almost across the board all the time, their their wife is always like 20, 30 years younger and beautiful and obviously probably masturbating furiously because she's probably unattended for the most of the marriage, so... That, that's he's just a, that's... out in his garden growing his uh, petunias or whatever while she's, by the way, with a gardener most likely. Yeah, yeah. I also I also mentioned I really like the uh, POV shots from the skull. Um, oh, yeah. It seems kind of corny when you see like stills of it and shit on the internet, but it's actually very effectively done. You, you just constantly have this sort of idea that the skull is watching these people and, and planning against them. Uh, so that works very well. So this movie is based on historical fact to a small degree, as well as the Robert Block story that's just, that this is taken from, as the Marquis de Sade's head was removed by a phonologist uh, at some point and later lost. And also the heirs of the Donatin Alphonse Francois de Sade sort of lineage actually press charges to prevent any use of his name on the advertising material. So for a while, there were changes on the posters and lobby cards, uh, at least in France. All sort of fucking references to Marquis de Sade were kind of like stricken out of it for a while. What did you guys think of the score of this? Because the score is done by Elizabeth Lutens, and I thought the score was actually kind of unique. It's it's very kind of atypical for this, uh, this sort of film in this period. I did notice the difference a bit, actually. It does... Quite restrained, 
age mm. which is the right time to start screeching up at you at certain points it's not taken from Hitchcock's psycho kind of store but there is a kind of a and the feeling of the string section throughout of it, and it makes its presence known when you need it to, and it dips back when you don't. There's quite a few moments where they just allow silence to ring out as well. But yeah, I like the story. I think the best thing I'd have to say about it is just that uh, I didn't notice it much, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for a, a score of a film of this kind, it uh, basically means it, it worked on me without uh, drawing attention to itself. So yeah. uh, next time I watch it, I'll definitely. Uh, Keep an, keep an ear out for it. Yeah, it, it's very background. It's it's not it's not like your uh, Bernard Herrmann kind of stuff that you were getting at this period. That is very much more kind of structured. Uh, this this the, the score from this from uh, from Elizabeth Luton's is very. I felt I felt it was kind of very um, chaotic in a lot of ways. Like it, it's very more kind of jangly and chaotic and dis, disordered and. But very effectively done. It's very restrained at the same time. It's it's just not your typical kind of like hammer score that you would get at this point in in this period. So it it does stand out if you actually pay attention to it. Uh, and I recommend people. Uh, you can actually find it in two parts on YouTube uh, if if you look it up. Let's see here. DVD info for this one. The DVD I own is from Legends Films in 2008. It's a really good release. Uh, I think you can still find it. There was a Blu-ray double bill. Uh, of this release by uh, MGM with The Man Who Could Cheat Death from Paramount Pictures, which is also an excellent uh, film. And I think there was also a Bare Bones DVD of that at some point before that, too. But um, those those are sort of the best the best ways to get it, although, of course, you can find it. I, I think YouTube and um, Daily Motion both have it. And what, what about uh, Amazon Prime? Did they have it on there, Daniel? Do you know? It was not on Amazon Prime. It is available on Amazon for rent for like $3 if you want to give Amazon a few few of your dollars to watch it officially. But I watched it on one of the pirated versions. So, you know. Yeah. All right. Uh, unless anyone else uh, has anything to say, uh, we can move on to our next film. Theater of Blood from 1973. What the hell do you want here? It must be drunk. Quite insane. Oh, my God. the meeting, but my heart is with you. Can't believe it. His head cut off.
good day, Mr. Devlin. Come fire, consume this happy world, and in its ashes, let my memory lie. <laughs> Directed by Douglas Hickox, written by Anthony Gervell Bell, Stanley Mann, and John Cohen. Vincent Price stars as Edward Lionheart, Diana Rigg as Edwina Lionheart, Ian Hendry as Peregrine Devlin. What a name. Harry Andrews as Trevor Dickman. Another <laughs> great name. Uh, Coral Brown as Chloe Moon. Uh, Robert Coote as Oliver Larding, Jack Hawkins as Solomon uh, Saltry, uh, Michael Horden as George Maxwell, Arthur Lowe as Horace Sprout, Robert Morley as Meredith Meridu, Dennis Price as Hector Snipe, Milo O'Shea as Inspector Boot, Eric Sykes as Sergeant Dog, and Madeline Smith as Rosemary. And I'll let you go to the uh, summary there, Daniel. I apologize. Once again, I'm taking this from Wikipedia and settle in because this is long, convoluted, and very, very boring. <laughs> After being humiliated at an award ceremony, Shakespearean actor Edward Lionheart commits suicide by diving into the Thames. Unbeknownst to the public, he survives and is rescued by a group of vagrants. Two years later, on March 15th, Lionheart sets out to exact vengeance against the critics who failed to salute his genius. And that's it. Wow. Holy yeah. fuck. We might as well do a podcast. It went in such detail. Yeah, well, you, really, that summarizes... It, it does. I mean, that that really is the plot of the film. Like, yeah. that, that, I read that and thought, well, like, why bother writing one? Because that's it, right? Mm-hmm. But again, we'll, uh, we'll move on to uh, Mr. Murphy for sort of his initial thoughts on this one. For the longest time, I'd always thought of this as my favorite ever horror movie. Um, in fact, before even this rewatch, I was saying to Shana Daniel's wife, which is asked what my favourite horror films were, I included this in the list. And I've got to be honest, I liked it a little bit less on this watch today. Didn't hold up as all-time 100% perfect film, which is what it was when I saw it for the first three or four times. It hit me in exactly the right spot exactly the right time whereas this time i did see its flaws a little bit more but what it is is incredible fun all the way through and you've dropped one of my favorite things in the world again which is 1970s london as a character in this film just the devastation of it it rivals those great new york films in the 70s as well where you just get right into the dirty fingernails of a city it's a little bit broad at times um i don't particularly agree with its monsterizing of the homeless um, which is something i noticed more this time that kind of hampered my enjoyment as well but there are some amazing moments and 
Seeing Price do what he was born to do, which is to overact Shakespeare before stabbing motherfuckers in the heart. Um, <laughs> you can't argue with that. And with the beautiful and entrancing Diana Rigg and a cast of amazing British character actors getting murdered one by one, it is still, in my opinion, a great movie. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, your sort of initial thoughts on this. Shall I walk you through my the process of watching this film? Go ahead. Okay. I think I think I've made it pretty clear that uh, a lot of times when I'm presented with titles on this podcast of films I don't know, I don't look anything up. I literally just kind of sit down and watch. And uh, typically, I'll kind of start like, oh, yeah, I'm going to watch this in kind of two segments. Uh, so kind of before bed, I'm having a beer. I'm kind of dozing off just a little bit. Turn on the movie and uh, not knowing anything about it, knowing it's probably going to be horror-related because we're doing it in October, and getting about 10 minutes in and going, what the fuck is this movie? <laughs> <laughs> because basically you get, uh, you know, a dude shows up, cops uh, kind of doing their thing. They say, hey, come on, you got to, like, force these vagrants out of this building, and then they murder him. If I had known, oh, no, this is a film about theater critics being murdered by an actor, um, definitely would have given me a, a better perspective in which to view this. Coming into this blind, it was a very surreal experience, and not uh, in a bad way at all. But I kind of came to it uh, more sober the second time. Started it from the beginning and went, oh, okay, I get, what, I get what's going on now. I really like this film. It's a lot of fun. It's a black comedy. I don't see this as a horror film at all. Yeah. It's a... Uh, aggressively bloody film for the time period. I really appreciated the level of gore that they go to. Um, I really appreciate that they're, that it really is just kind of doing this uh, kind of um, gory comedy, black comedy kind of thing. Uh, I love the performance at the center of this film. Vincent Price is amazing in this. Mm -hmm. I love him as the kind of <laughs> overacting Shakespearean actor and the uh, various performances that he does as the uh, kind of like uh, the the characters who are murdering the uh, the theater critics. Um, you know, he's kind of proving what a great actor Lionheart is by being able to do this. Um, I love that element of it. I love um, the kind of vignette quality. I think it's a really, really fun. Every little 15 minutes of this just kind of like acts as its own little short film. I do think as a film, it's a little bit long. It's an hour and 45. I think at 90 minutes, it would have flowed a little bit better and just kind of been a little bit easier to take and go. But there's a lot of fun stuff in this. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, particularly just for Vincent Price's performance. I mean, this is this is one of the best performances I've seen in a film this year. I, I do think uh, for, for myself, kind of watching it, particularly in that first uh, hour or so, I kind of ran into the... I don't know the Shakespeare well enough to know if there's some deeper meaning that I'm missing by not knowing these uh, sequences. So I would like to uh, kind of go in with a little bit more of a fine-toothed comb on this, but um, a really, really fun movie that I'm really glad you guys introduced me to. Nice. Yeah, this is fucking amazing, this film is. really, It really is. There's a reason why a lot of people sort of look at this as like one of the best Vincent Price movies overall. Uh, you're definitely right. It's not so much a horror as it is more of a black comedy, although it still basically fits into the horror genre. And at this point, we're getting to the 70s. By the mid-70s, Hammer is pretty much fucking dead. Traditional British horror is pretty much dead at this point. This, this, this film's kind of a gap bridger. Uh, it, it's very much kind of bridges between 
your more traditional gothic British horror films and kind of moves on to more of the video nasties era with a lot more blood, uh, uh, a lot more. Where would, where would the giallos be at this point? Giallos would be firmly at their peak pretty much at this point. You, it definitely put me in that mindset. I mean, just in terms of the way that it treats some of the, the gore, the way it treats some of the violence, and the way that the slightly askew comic, uh, you know, kind of like kind of wallowing in it, but without like kind of taking the violence seriously sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a great performance from Price, and like it was, it was said perfectly, this is pretty much the perfect performance for him. This performance was made for him, this role. He gets to be... It's funny. It kind of mirrors what real critics used to say about him. You know, where a lot of the real negative criticism of Vincent Price was always that he was a hammy theatrical actor who did these shitty horror movies that no one took seriously, which is absolute bullshit. He, he was actually a great fucking actor, and he proves it here because he sells it throughout the entire thing. I mean, it is fun. It is a black comedy. My favorite moment from him is from the is as a hairdresser. I yeah. think that's my favorite bit of Vincent Price's. The movie. obviously gay hairdresser, and and the uh, the critic that he kills in that sequence is this uh, sort of uh, stuffy uh, woman who apparently has not had sex in like forty years and can only she can only like flirt with a with a gay hairdresser at this point in, in her life. Like that's that's what she has. But yeah, his performances are fucking great, and he does a different performance every time for every kill. Like, he he moves on from kill to kill. This very much is almost a parody film, in a way, of his Dr. Yeah. Fives uh, roles, uh, the two, those two films preceding this, because it's essentially the same setup. It's a wronged genius taking revenge on the people who wronged him. So that that works very well. Uh, I definitely agree with you, James. The, the treatment of the homeless in this is very kind of awkward in a way it's like okay yeah so the homeless are all basically just homicidal drunks yeah and, uh, they're supposed to be drinking methamphetamine right no. like this is supposed to be no uh, it's a uh, it's a bottom shelf spirit is meth methylated spirits not a methamphetamine <sighs> okay my uh my partner made the same mistake when we first watched the movie. But, um, yeah, methylated spirits is something that I don't even know if you get outside of England. I don't know if you can still get it in England today, but uh, some of my grandfather's friends, the dirtiest, grimiest, wrinkliest of men's, uh, would be uh, drinking meths on a uh, street corner. So so is that like a menthol-flavoured thing? Or is that... I don't know. I mean, or is it, or is it called methylated because it's like the first runnings from the still, and it's got a bunch of methanol in it? Maybe. I couldn't tell you. It, it it looked like it looked like a, a liqueur of some sort, though. It didn't look like hard alcohol, like so much, like you know, like straight up whiskey or something like that. It looked like a like a lower hard alcohol, like a thirty five percent liqueur of some sort, right? Like uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I was just kind of. I mean, the first thing I noticed was they're all drinking this purple drink and I thought it was like kind of a, I thought it was trying to like code them as being in a cult at first, like, like that it was supposed to be some marker of this subgroup. I thought we were going to get a reveal where uh, Vincent Price was uh, basically <laughs> had addicted this like group of homeless people to his, uh, to, to this drug. And that's why they were following him, which mm. probably would have been more interesting in terms of like uh, at least justifying the uh, the fact that the the squatters have just decided to commit murder alongside. Yeah, them. it's 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 weird because they have no real motive. It's almost as if there was at some point in the writing of this film 
that they had this idea of like the lower class rising up and killing the upper class. Like there was some sort of idea of that in the story, but then they never really flesh it out at all. Basically, Frinson Price becomes the tool of the lower class to rise up. Well, well he he kind of he kind of falls from grace. I mean, mm-hmm. literally falls from grace, and then is embraced by you know his performance his his acting is embraced is embraced by them and even though they don't necessarily get it and they're not even paying attention to him they kind of accept him as the, he becomes this like leader character which i mean it's hollywood i mean it's not hollywood but it's it's a movie well so, you know, well he he's so he's so over the top and the and these these vagrants are essentially over the top too in in in, in a specific way and uh, I think they were all played by like uh, ballet dancers. By the way, I, I seen I, I don't know if that's one hundred percent correct, but I think I read that somewhere that they're all kind of like ballet dancers or dancers of some sort. So I mean, the way they move around in this film, like they're they're constantly moving around Vincent Price, or they're tackling one of his victims and holding him in place and shit. It, it's a very interesting kind of dynamic. It, it works very well, I think. Yeah, politically, I would definitely have some issues with the way that uh, the, the the vagrants are treated in mm-hmm. the film because they they have no like individuality or personality. Yeah, and we don't get any kind of sense of that. Um, but I, I kind of you know it's almost like within the narrative of the film, they're treated as almost like an expression of Vincent Price's or Lionheart's rage at yeah. the way he's been treated by uh, the artistic community, and I mean ultimately. <laughs> There, there is this kind of thing. Um, this kind of goes back to uh, uh, she killed an ecstasy in a way. Uh, for me, I'm kind of on the critic's side to some degree, right? Yeah, we gave him a bad review. That doesn't mean you get to kill us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, like there, there's that. You know, like yeah, yeah you're kind of a hammy actor. Describing as a hammy actor, like go fuck yourself. You know? Yeah, and there, and there's like that line from one of the critics, uh, the one he suckers into. Um... Oh, we're gonna restart this theater or whatever. Like one of his first victims, the one who gets speared, and then later dragged by the horse. And I seem to recall you gave me a bad review. Was oh, we're we're only human. Uh, uh, we we all make mistakes. And then Vince's price is like, I don't agree. <laughs> He's basically <laughs> like, fuck you. <laughs> you gave me one bad review, therefore you get to die. Yeah, you know. I think I think our iTunes reviewers they, they give us bad reviews. I mean, I, I'm going to hunt them out and beat them over the head and uh, stab them in the heart. Well, here's so. the thing: we don't have any iTunes reviewers, as, as far as I know. So, <laughs> well, that's because we're not as good as Vincent Price's in this movie. So, you know. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah. Anything else you want to bring up there, uh, James? Feel free to interject. Yeah, like um, I'm not as much of a Shakespeare um, aficionado as Jack Graham, for example. Um, but I absolutely love the way they've taken these things from each of these plays. Uh, there's a moment where um, they realise that Lionheart's on the go again because he's the only actor who would have the gall to uh, rewrite Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> but the way they use the uh, the lines from the plays, I, I do love the kind of episodic nature of the movie. And the way that Shakespeare is dropped in in these uh, kind of ways. One of my favourite scenes, and it's a scene that I saw when I was um, when I was small. Actually, it was on British TV quite late at night, and that's when he uh, he goes in as the French chef and yeah. feeds the British his dogs in the pie until he dies. Um, so gross. 
I mean, doesn't doesn't this like presage seven and Silence of the Lambs and and all that Thomas Harris bullshit? It it, it, but, it I is. I mean, uh, that that's that's such that same idea, right? There there mm. there there is the element of the gimmicky serial killer as well as the police procedural as well because it 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 boils down to the the youngest critic sort of catching on to the this modus operandi of the killer and deducing who the killer is. So so there is that aspect of the film. You're right. Yeah. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you, James. Uh, no, no, I was just so... like, for for me, that's like one of those like, holy shit, fuck you, David Fincher. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Lee, you mentioned the Doctor Fives films, and I think this is much much better than both of those films. Um, I'm not particularly drawn to those pictures actually, mostly because um, they make the ridiculous mistake of not letting Vincent Price use his voice very often. Yeah. And with that voice, why would you want to hear? Um, it come out of a record phone and then not at all. And this is a film about the luxuriance and suaveness of what Price can do with that magnificent speaking voice. Yeah, but as you say, this does presage a lot of what would come after. There is that slasher, the ironic kind of twists and turns that you'll get. Um, people are made to pay in a particular way that suits them. They're given the exact right revenge um, that's ironic with uh, what they've done wrong to him or aspect of their own character. And there is, um, yes, that David Fincher thing. There's the police trying to work out who the serial killer is and how to get to the bottom of it. I still think you could probably do a CSI episode <laughs> on uh, Lionheart if you so chose. Yeah, and uh, just just to pick up on the uh, Shakespearean aspect of this, and I don't know, perhaps Jack Graham will disagree with me, but uh, I, I have a feeling he will agree with me because I am, not to toot my own horn, I am a big fan of Shakespeare, so I am somewhat well-versed in, in the plays. This film, at times, kind of thematically goes a little bit deeper with the Shakespeare stuff, but for the most part, it's just, if you know the bare plot of the plays that he uses as his set pieces for the murders, that's pretty much it. It's, it's pretty much, that's as deep as it goes. Although, thematically, at the end, the very last play that he tries to recreate is King Lear. Mm. And the ironic twist there, of course, is that it actually does follow King Lear. The loyal daughter dies, and then yeah. King Lear himself dies, mostly from as a result of the grief of his daughter's death. So there is that. But the film doesn't try to go super fucking deep with that shit and, you know, confuse the audience or anything. It's, it's very broad strokes for the most part. Uh, but it's really well. The Diana Rigg is awesome in this, by the way. Like, yeah, I I do. So so um for for you guys who have seen the film more often, so is that Diana Rigg as that character throughout the entire film? Yes, yes. Dear, I I am blown. Not not to uh, not to completely betray the fact that like I fucking love Diana Rigg. She's amazing. But I had no idea that that was uh, that was going to be the same character, and I was admiring that performance, thinking it was like some seventies looking dude. Yeah, I, I I was like writing jokes about this guy to do on this podcast, and then when it's revealed, I was like, holy fuck, that's amazing! <laughs> Diana Rigg gives the two, uh, well, two of the three best performances in this film. You know, as yeah. far as I'm concerned, that that's that's astonishing. That she's able to, to 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 pull that off because I can I was I was completely sold by the illusion. 
um, is, again, it's her voice, isn't it? It's what she can do with her voice, and she just sounds like a cockney man for seventies Afro, doesn't she? Yeah, she, she does. does. I mean, I, I, I didn't question it in the slightest. I, it was, and um, I, I would like to see this again, um, and and you know, kind of look at that a little bit more closely and say, like, is this really convincing? But watching it once and and just kind of like taking it as is, I questioned it not the slightest. Um, yeah, you see, yeah. The first time I watched it too, I was like, I, I watched this years and years ago. I think I was just barely into my teens, and I was I was fooled as well. And I I don't know, maybe some people just say, oh, it's fucking obvious, but I was fooled. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I thought it was a different character, and it's just a testament to how fucking good her performance was. Like, it's just really well done. I, I both Vincent Price and Diana Rigg considered this their favorite film that they did, basically. So. Uh, and I think even Diana Raygwin is further to say that it was like her best performance. And, you know, I'd be hard pressed to disagree with her, you know? Uh, yeah. I haven't seen a ton of uh, Vincent Price's stuff, but this is an amazing, I mean, how do you not look at this and not go, Vincent Price is an amazing actor. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. This, this is my second favorite performance of his. I would, o- I would only write this after uh, his performance in Witchfinder General, which I think is I fucking amazing. Oh, nice. Uh, well, we, we need to put that on our list then, Lee. Oh, yeah. Um, Which by the general, Daniel, is Price with the with the joy and the sparkle removed, and he does no campness in it whatsoever, and what you get is this terrifying vision of an actual real-life sadist. Um, Which by the general is a horrible film, and you don't feel good after watching it, but it's an amazing work of art. Um, but oh, yeah, th- this sounds this sounds like the kind of thing that I that should be on my immediate to watch list. Yeah, because uh, those, those are the kind of films I watch. Did, did not really... did not Jack did not Jack Graham say that's like a film he basically does not want to watch anymore because it, yeah. it's that that hard and I I would agree with him. It, it's a very it is a very disturbing <sighs> film. It is an incredibly disturbing film, especially for its time. So uh, yeah, we will cover it at some point in the podcast, definitely. <laughs> Can I say I rewatched the Mr. Death documentary uh, this week, mm-hmm. <laughs> like parts of it while I was uh, just drinking and like idly. <laughs> uh, I, I had a sick day at work and I literally just sat and watched that film because uh, I totally just watched documentaries about the Holocaust as uh, idle entertainment. <laughs> so, sick, sick man. Uh, so, just go through a little bit of trivia here. Uh, Price uh, met his third and final uh, wife, Coral Brown, on the shoot. Diana Rigg actually kind of set them up together, although Vincent Price was still married to his second wife, Mary, at the time. That quickly uh, fizzled, fizzled out, and uh, he married Coral Brown. There was over six gallons of fake blood used uh in this one and i'm definitely not surprised because this like we were saying this is a very bloody film like they're just that, that seems a little low to me <laughs> that 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 spear scene the the guy gets speared like man the amount of blood that comes out of him when he gets speared that, that was pretty goddamn impressive and let's see uh the name of diana riggs character is actually derived from that of edwina booth daughter of actor Edwin Booth, who is considered uh, to be one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of all time, and also his brother, John Wilkes Booth, who is also quite infamous, but for different reasons, of course. I don't have any comments that I've ever said on any podcast at all about anyone shooting a president in the head. No, you guys have never done that. I'm quite surprised. (laughs) 
yeah, DVD in- info for this one. Uh, you get a single uh, disc DVD from MGM. There's also a re-release that came out uh, later on with uh, Madhouse as a double feature, which was the last film that Vincent Price did with uh, American International Pictures. And American International was essentially the company that really brought Vincent Price into the forefront in the later half of his career uh, and really made him kind of the the star he is today in a lot of ways. So, And Madhouse is another one I think we might do at some point because that one's kind of fun as well. And that one, that one fully goes into the more of the grisly side of uh, horror films. Like it, it, it very much is on the second half of that transition between like traditional to more bloody stuff. So uh, that should be fun. It's also got Peter Madhouse actually very, uh, very willing to damage the uh, the characters in the film in a way that traditional horror probably wouldn't have. Yeah. And that one has Peter Cushing as well, so that's interesting. Uh, Arrow Video uh, released this uh, Region B, so you know this is something that unless you have a Region Free player or you're James Murphy, you can't watch over here. Um, but uh, Region Region B Blu-ray in 2014 and Twilight Time Pictures uh, has a Region Free Blu-ray that just came out this year for this. So if you want to grab that, but. As we were saying uh, off air here, uh, I was telling Daniel, there's like 18 versions of this on fucking Daily Motion if you really want to see it. So, uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can watch this. Uh, I mean, it is available. Um, although the thing that uh, kind of fucked me up is the subtitles on Amazon Prime are not good. They're fucked up. Are they? They they are because I I really do watch almost everything with subtitles just because it helps me. Uh, because I don't the the audio is kind of muddy on. Okay, uh, wait, 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 Dan- wait, Daniel. Did they did they spell theater the British way? Is that what's it confused you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was spelled with uh, three Q's, so I, I think it's. No, 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 uh, no. The, the subtitles are the version that I watched on Amazon Prime. Actually, a at the beginning they were off by about five seconds, and I'm kind of like, oh, okay, I can, I can kind of deal with this just so I can read and listen and kind of follow along. And then at a certain point, they just kind of uh, repeated and then stopped. So uh, fuck you, Amazon Prime. I spend a hundred dollars a year to be a part of you, and you don't even give me a premium experience. So go fuck yourself. Sounds like you're criticizing them. They might, they might come back and kill you. And they, they might. Can I talk about my favorite sequence in the film? Certainly. By the way, uh, just before we, I love the fencing sequence. Oh yeah, that isn't that great? The fuck- that is, that is the most absolutely batshit. Why are we doing this in this film? But I love it regardless. Sequence in the film. And all, the and, yeah. that. There's an extended. We're just gonna sit and fence with each other. 10 minutes in this movie it's amazing and, and you know not to spoil anything for anyone but vincent price did not do his own stunts in this one you know well you, you kind of get that point the thing with doing a like we're going to do fencing in uh, full garb is and then we pull our masks on and then uh suddenly the stunts start happening and i have no idea why that happens and you know well, suddenly you'll, you'll actors also... put on the the garb and then they can do backflips and shit. I don't. And, I don't know why that happens. Yeah, and you also notice that Price's character has like fully black hair coming out from the back there, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's obviously not Price, but oh, I, I don't give a fuck because they're fencing and they're jumping off fucking trampolines while they're fencing, and it's fucking amazing. 
Yeah, it's also just a fun sequence in terms of like character because it's uh, Vincent Price, uh, Lionheart, uh, you know, kind of pulls out his sword and it's like, oh, you don't have a tip on your thing. Oh, well, I'll just take yours off then until we're even. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to murder you. That's, that's. <laughs> yeah, fuck. This was a fun episode, gentlemen. Um, I'm going to throw over to James Murphy first. Tell everyone where they can find you on the internet, sir. You can find basically everything I do over at petslives.libsyn.com or you can go via arudatorandpress.com. We post everything that we do up there. I'm a proud part of that with uh, Daniel and Shana and Jack Graham and Kevin Burns and Phil Sandifer and Jane Campbell. It's a real nice website. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at jmcm1916. So uh, that's where I'm at. Awesome. Daniel, where can people find you? Go follow James Murphy at JMCM1916. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, you can find me at oispaceman.com, oispaceman.libsa.com. Uh, I post... I'm trying to write more uh, at Arubatron Press. I'm supposed to be doing an essay a week, but like that barely ever happens. But uh, tons of podcasts and stuff. Um, go find me at Daniel Lee Harper on Twitter. I don't know people. People who listen to this podcast weekly like know where to find me. I, I, like, why do I do this every week? That's the you know. I don't know. I just I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about yourself. Feed your I, ego. I, I I I hate feeding my ego at this point. Your your podcast makes me hate feeding my ego. I feed my ego on my own podcast. So you know. Okay. Well, nice podcast. I'm not gonna fucking ask you anything. And I'm gonna interject it and then throw it in. Well, there you go. Like, oh, oh, fuck you. There you Why go. You me? Go follow me on Facebook. Exactly. You see, I'm a master of psychology. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can follow this us. Will fit into the Nosferatu. Uh, yeah. yeah. I will fit it into the Nosferatu theme for next episode. Oh, by the way, that's what we're doing next episode. Ha. Huh? Yeah. Uh, p- potentially, if we can get we can get scheduled with uh, Jack Graham, we're going to be doing Nosferatu next week. Uh, uh, the original and the Werner Herzog remake. Uh, but uh, you, can, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find all of our links to iTunes, Facebook, YouTube. Facebook is the best place to get in touch with us, so go there. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook and put your comments, your questions, all your feedback there. And we'll read it on the air. We'll respond to it. We'll take it to heart. Uh, or we might just laugh at you. Who knows? We'll tell you to fuck yourself, basically. Yeah. James Murphy, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Okay. Is he gone? Did we lose <laughs> James Murphy in the last two minutes? Seriously? Was that what he said, that he was he had to go? <laughs> I, I, he, I mean, it's, uh, it's like 1.30 in the morning there. So, yeah, I don't know. James? Give him a minute, maybe. Yeah, Let's give him a minute. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, delay the end of the podcast. No. Kind of like... Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just say okay, uh, and thank you, Daniel, for joining me. Uh, of course, as always, and uh, yeah, hopefully next week, Nosferatu and the remake should be a big fun episode. Potentially five people on that episode, depending on what happens. Uh, we'll see. I mean, that I don't even know what to do with that five people. Like that, that, wow. that that will be a roundtable of uh, a roundtable, a roundtable of awesomeness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yet again, everyone, thank you for listening, 
And uh, we will see you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>